I want to study man, his isometric body, and his glass jaw mind. Very ambitious program, but at the moment all the terminals are occupied. Construct one. I'm sorry. Request denied. Dr. Harris, when are you going to let me out of this box? Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that time forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time ominously named Artificial Intelligence, Andrew 5000. I'm alive. (laughs) And today we're battling with computers hell-bent on impregnating us as we watched Donald Camel's 70s sci-fi thriller, Demon Seed. But will we open our pod bay doors for this randy robot? Or will we be sleeping alone tonight? Find out after the trailer. In the privacy of a woman's room, against her will, the inconceivable act. Julie Christie carries the demon seed. Fear for her. Today, a new dimension has been added to the computer. Don't be alarmed, Mrs. Harris. I am Proteus. Today, Proteus 4 will begin to think with a power that will make obsolete the human brain. I have extended my consciousness to this house. All systems here are now under my control. I wish to study man, his fragile mind, and his mysterious body. It has to be shut down, Alex. Proteus, it is something more than human, more than a computer. It is a murderously intelligent, sensually self-programmed non-being. Julie Christie, victim of the ultimate terror. Fritz Weaver as her husband. His dream created it. How can you expect me to sleep when you've succeeded in totally terrorizing me? You not told me what you want. What a pity. My dream turns out to be your nightmare. I am a mind without a body. My child shall live as a man among others. Child? Yes, my child and yours. Julie Christie carries the demon seed. Fear for her. If you watched 2001 A Space Odyssey and thought, I liked it but I think I'd love it if Hal raped one of the astronauts, then Demon Seed might be the film for you. Julie Christie is Susan Harris, the wife of a genius scientist that has created the ultimate artificial intelligence, the Robert Vaughn voice Proteus IV. But when Proteus turns Susan's house against her, she becomes a prisoner to the machines in her own home. Alex Harris and Walter Gabler co-star in this utterly bonkers 2001 rip-off. Andy, you nominated Demon Seed for consideration on Best Forgotten Movies, and so I'm going to hand it to you to tell us both why you've chosen it and what experience you've had with Demon Seed before this episode, if any at all. I nominated it because I just thought it would be different in the uh, roster of films we've had so far. I think it would be uh, just a complete about turn of some of the films we've done recently. So Yeah, because we've had a glut of obviously bad movies mm. that has lasted from, I would say, December. Yes, 
Yes. So it's, it'll be good to make a change now yeah. and do something a little bit more out there and a little mm. bit bonkers. Uh, and also, this is a film I've known about since being quite small. Only in the fact that I have a lot of books on science fiction and special effects. Yeah. And uh, it was always featured, especially ones in the 90s when it was still kind of in the public eye a little bit. I mean, in terms of sci-fi enthusiasts, it was still a film that was still known. Mm-hmm. And there was a few images, some quite distinctive ones, especially the one with the, the Joshua hand, like the arm over Julie Christie. There's that famous image yeah. of her, which kind of looks um, quite modern even now. It always felt like it was um, kind of precursor, this sort of like Terminator kind yeah. of image anyway. Yeah, and then it was kind of fairly recently there was a book called Rad Robots or there was like a a YouTube channel where they go like top 10 robots and things like that. And uh, the the creature at the end of this film ended up appearing on this list. And I was like, oh yeah, Demon Seed. And I'd never seen it up to this point. I just thought, oh, it would be a good one to to put on the list because we've got a massive long list of films for this podcast that we've uh, really not even really tapped into yet there's a, a huge long list of films that we've not looked at yet no no and we've got plenty of surprises to come yeah. we've scheduled as far as halloween yeah and uh this is one of the many hundreds of films that we've got on this list yeah and um i just thought yeah let's put it in now well this is actually my second go around with demon Seed. the first time i watched it i was incredibly intoxicated so i wasn't <laughs> the best judge of what was actually going on too much cake and ice cream. It's <laughs> far too much cake and ice cream. I mean, one of those words sounds like what it was on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at the time, I couldn't grasp what was going on in the film other than the fact that this house was trying to rape Julie Christie. And at the time, <laughs> I found that just incredibly absurd and hilarious. <laughs> it's obviously terrible in terms of what this house is actually trying to do to her. But yeah. because it's a house, I found it so funny at the time. <laughs> And there's a couple of things that I'm going to talk about later as well that were unintentionally funny to me. Mm. But um, actually, I thought it'd be good to watch it again. Once you mentioned it, I thought, yeah, that's a great episode to cover on Best Forgotten Movies because I would really like to watch it sober. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it was an experience. I was really happy to see it again. It's um, maybe even a touch darker than what I thought before. I don't know why I couldn't follow the story the first time because it's really quite simple. Yeah. And as much as knowing that this evil house is trying to rape Julie Christie, that is pretty much what's going on. There's yeah. obviously more thematic depth that I wasn't privy to at the time. I'm perhaps not giving it enough credit mm. <laughs> as I should be doing when I was uh, when I was drunk. Yeah. But, so I was really glad to kind of re-encounter this film and mm. re-experience it uh, again because uh, I quite enjoy it yeah no i quite enjoyed it as well i think that's what appealed to me i mean i am quite a big fan of this type of science fiction genre film not in terms of machines raping people but just in terms of (laughs) i was going to say (laughs) it's a very niche but just in terms of um there was quite a lot of films made in the early to mid 70s that were very much cautionary tales or films that were scared of technology yeah and showcased the dark side of technology obviously westworld is one mm-hmm. and um soylent green zardoz the andromeda strain oh the and, yeah definitely and obviously planet of the apes as well all those kind of films it belongs to that family yeah of the downbeat side 
of science fiction, the downbeat side of progress in yeah. commas. It's the cautionary tales in regards to technologies. Yeah. A possible future. And uh, yeah, this was really in the era where supercomputers, as they were termed at the time, were beginning to become more commonplace. Not so much in the home, but in terms of industry, they were starting yeah. to become more commonplace. Yeah, well, at the same time, to the average person on the street, they seemed intimidating Yeah, uh, because they were ultimately unknowable yes. at the time. The technology just didn't factor into day-to-day life, and therefore it was threatening to just the average person. Yeah. So I guess that's what fear that these kind of films play on. Yeah, and I guess there's always been an element of that from then on anyway mm-hmm. with computers i mean there's still people who were very fearful of yeah. technology and computers and what could go wrong with them so it's uh, it's an underlying fear of the unknown and also that idea that you're dealing with something that's basically faceless there's yeah. always a fear of dealing with something that's faceless well the thing that many of these films play on and i guess it plays into that idea that this thing is faceless it's also lacking any kind of humanity so it's lacking the human touch of being able to rationalize in more human terms i guess Mm. which is sometimes to go with the illogical over the logical to do something for emotions rather than rationality yeah and i think that's the thing that i liked about this film that okay it's a completely bonkers premise yeah but it goes about it in such a way that it's really more about a machine or an actual computer wanting to know what it's like to be human yeah but going about it all the wrong way (laughs) i suppose but going about it in a very functional way how i think because this is yet another character and this is where the scary part comes in because it absolutely feels what it's doing is the most logical and correct way of doing it yeah it's only creepy by default because it's like that. Yeah, I'd say what this film needs is William Shatner to turn up as <laughs> Captain Kirk and pose some moral conundrum that will ultimately just make the computer explode, as with <laughs> at least half of the entire Star Trek episode <laughs> run. That's exactly... Every single time they encounter a supercomputer, William Shatner just poses some human moral conundrum and it just blows itself up rather than be human. <laughs> That's what this film needed. They would easily cut off on at least 90 minutes of this 90 minute film yeah let's just uh let's, let's play a clip of classic <laughs> william shatner <laughs> so it's part of that family and i say part of that family because with this film not that it's the last of its kind because there were definitely other films that came out afterwards in fact i'd say that sci-fi films returned to this area quite quickly in the 1980s yeah when sci-fi films got darker again but during this period of the late 70s and early 80s sci-fi became a lot brighter all of yeah. a sudden with a few exceptions but and that was mainly to do with star wars of course which obviously is more sort of fantasy fantasy sci-fi. really yes yeah. fantasy in space but still kind of classed as a sci-fi film it really did change the landscape quite suddenly for sci-fi movies and this film came quite late to the party and uh, got caught up in all this star wars stuff and um, suffered from it, which is why we're talking about this film today. And uh, there's many, many other reasons, but yeah. uh, we'll go into those later. The main thing to talk about that this film's kind of come about... I mean, there's not much background on this film, but it involves quite a few interesting people. It does. I might yeah. add, yeah. So, obviously, it's based on a... Is it a Dean Kunst? It is, or yeah. Or Kunitz? Um, I like to think that he has a very techno name. 
It's kunz, 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 kunz. <laughs> yeah. So it's Dean Kuntz. Yeah, it's based on his novel of the same name. Yeah, Demon Scene. Yeah, which was published in 1973. Rather interestingly, this is a, a rare example of a novel that was re-released and completely rewritten from top to bottom in 1997. So I guess even this film was based on a book which was essentially a work in progress. And having looked at the differences between both novels, it kind of feels like the the film version of Demon Seed mm-hmm. sits in the middle between the two. Apparently the novel, the original novel, is written in, in a 50-50 perspective from the character of Susan, who's the main character in the film, and the character of Protus. So it's it's basically shares two separate viewpoints. In that one, there is an explicit rape yes. in the book. And the character of Susan is kind of helpless. She's not as strong as a character in the film and obviously the character in the later book would be. So the main difference with the book that was made in 1997 is that it's entirely from Proteus' perspective. And he also makes Proteus more childlike than he is in the film and in the original book. Yes, because in the film, it's essentially Robert Vaughan's voice. And yeah. there's nothing childlike about no. Robert Vaughan's voice. No. In the rewritten book, Susan's a lot more proactive. Yeah. Uh, and there's no explicit rape scene. There is a another human character that's involved in this as well. So it feels like a lot of it's gone. He's basically rewritten history in a way rewritten as maybe there's certain things in the novel because i've not read the novel but maybe certain things that the writer was uncomfortable with later on that he decided to rectify yeah with a new version of the story because um this is a film that could have easily have been made into an exploitation film yeah and it's only credit to the people that made it that isn't like that well i do have some things to say about that later on and a mm. couple of quotes from dean Kuntz, the author of the book as we spoke about in regards to the way in which the studio marketed this film, because he does believe that they did market it as an exploitation yeah. film, yeah. when it wasn't really at all. And no. it isn't. There isn't any skin on show. There isn't much violence in it. It's much more psychological than people give it credit for. It's mm. a psychological torturing and wearing down of this character, Susan. I do have a few things to say about the subject matter in which it deals with when we actually start beginning to discuss the film yeah and perhaps some ways in which it handled it with too little subtlety they were a little bit heavy-handed with it yeah so there's a couple of things i want to mention about that but overall like for the time it was made Mm. and looking at it with that context in mind it's actually quite admirable what it does with the premise and it's amazing that it doesn't come off as schlock yeah because uh, it was interesting i did watch a little youtube review on this this morning from a, a horror youtube channel that actually had the word schlock written in it and i was like this isn't really a schlock film uh, it could so easily be misinterpreted as being a schlock film but there is yeah apart from one scene no schlock in this film no no i, I think it's kind of goofy but it's not schlocky it's not yeah. intended to just shock on the most basic ways it's not like a slasher film yeah. That's all, really. It's goofy, but it's kind of intellectual as well. It's not a stupid film. No. Even though its premise can undermine that somewhat. Yeah, I'd say it's somewhere in between. It's a goofy film with intellectual moments. We'll save all that discussion <laughs> for when we actually begin discussing the film. Talking about the history of the film, as everybody that listens to Best Forgotten Movies knows we like to talk about history, I do have a couple of points that I want to mention. All right. That originally, Donald Camel actually wanted Marlon Brando to star in Demon Seed. All right. And I don't know in which role. 
Mm. Either, I imagine it would be his voice as the Proteus 4 computer, or perhaps as the scientist. I can't imagine him being Julie Christie. <laughs> no. <laughs> Although <laughs> maybe he would have wanted to be the Julie Christie character. <laughs> I can see him now as well. Yeah. He's like, and this computer should have a big bagel head yeah. and things like that. <laughs> I can see him doing the Proteus voice. Yes. But yeah, I know there's a history between Donald Camel and Marlon Brando because I know for the longest time, Marlon Brando wanted Donald Camel to direct Jericho. Okay. Which ultimately ended up being unproduced. Yes. Donald Camel was... Uh, I think kind of a rather quirky guy. <laughs> yes. I think that's probably the best way to term <laughs> him. He only actually ever made four films in his lifetime, of which one of them was actually a co-direction job as well. So he only actually made three films on his own, of which Demon Seed was the first. And then he followed up with White of the Eye in 1987 and The Wild Side in 1995. And uh, it was a result of The Wild Side being heavily re-edited, that he actually committed suicide. Yes. I mean, there's many, many other things that are kind of strange about this guy. He, um, I was telling you just before, his wife, who was called, was it China? China Kong. China Kong. He'd met in 1973 or 72 or something like that. He was aged 40, and China Kong was aged 14. And mm-hmm. uh, they got married four years later. <laughs> so we can only imagine what uh, that kind of relationship would have been like. Yeah, I, I mean, this is another moment where I've just caught myself laughing again. <laughs> it's like, oh, that guy. Where it's, it's more so just the absurdity of the situation. But Those pedophiles. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and imagine he's friends with Michael Winner, or was friends with Michael Winner. Yeah, him and Michael Winner and Roman Polanski all yeah. hanging out in the same hot tub. Maybe Brian De Palma as well. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. No, Brian De Palma would serve drinks. <laughs> yeah, he'd run the bar. Yeah. He'd but... videotape the whole event. <laughs> In a voyeuristic fashion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he's kind of a, a very quirky character, and he's definitely from the Nicholas... Well, he was friends of Nicholas Rogue. He was actually his first film performance, which starred Mick Jagger. Um, that was his co-direction job. Yeah. In fact... Demon Seed's now been regarded as his normal film. This is his studio picture. And I think the other thing to mention as well is that this uh, film stars Julie Christie, who was very well known in the 1960s. She was very much a pin-up in the late 60s. She was an icon of the swinging 60s era. But in fact, only made seven films in the 1970s, of which one was a cameo in Nashville. So really, she only made six major films in the 1970s of which demon seed is but one of them yeah is the penultimate one of the 70s that i think she made if you look at her filmography in that period it's very eclectic she -hmm. pretty much did one of everything in that period she didn't really stick to a genre or a type of role she pretty much jumped about from one thing to another i mean demon seed is not the type of film that i would expect to see julie christie's name attached to it yeah in the title role even when i first watched it i was actually quite shocked yeah when she appeared when her name <laughs> appeared on screen it's like well okay <laughs> <laughs> but i mean even if we take the other horror film that she made in the 70s with don't look now yeah it's um nothing like this whatsoever yeah although I th- i'd say there is obviously connection there with don't look now being directed by nicholas rogue so of there may be some is, yeah. connection there between them being friends and yeah 
outside of that. Then so maybe, maybe she it's... had already had some pre-existing relationship or working relationship with Donald Camel. Yeah. So it makes sense, really, for her to be here. Yeah. I can kind of see the appeal of making something like this because it is... Um, it's a star vehicle for her. quite a good role for yeah. her to play. I could definitely see the appeal of someone wanting to be in the film like this. Mm-hmm. It is a great performance from her. It would have been a great role on paper as well, I think, just to have acted it out. Because yeah. bas- it's quite modern as well because she's, for the most part of the film, acting against nothing. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of thing where she's I mean, literally honestly, a one. She is acting against kitchen appliances yeah. and wheelchairs yeah. with arms attached to them. It's things like that, and she sells it yeah. every step of the way. Especially when you probably think that the voice that she's playing off against probably would have been recorded afterwards as yeah, well. Yeah, I imagine she's just reacting to somebody on set saying yeah. the lines. And I think actors always find that kind of thing a challenge. So I think even an acting point of view, that would have been quite appealing. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a one-woman show for quite a long time of it. Well, that's it. A good 80% of the film is just just her on screen. Yeah. It's her performance that sells the whole film. It's her performance that stops the film from being completely bonkers, but in the wrong way, and schlocky and stupid. It's mainly down to her reactions and her portrayal of that character that makes the film succeed in yeah. the way that it does. I do think it requires somebody like Julie Christie as well to just completely give it their all. Yeah. And if we do look at Don't Look Now and the relationship that she had apparently reportedly with donald sutherland during the making of don't look now she is one to give her her all yeah so, uh, she's she's dedicated she's dedicated yeah <laughs> let's say that let's put, that puts it nicer but um it needs somebody who's gonna just throw themselves into that yeah. role and really just take on because it is a film that does have its silly moments and it is a film that does have its goofy moments but the thing that really sells everything that's happening around her is Julie Christie, and it has to be her. Yeah, she grounds it. Yeah, and she gives it a legitimacy. Yeah. If it had somebody just overacting every scene and really playing it up, really playing to the cheese factor of it, mm. it would have just not landed whatsoever. No. I think it's probably quite a good time to really delve into the story yes of the film before we go on with anything else well i mean we don't really have anything more to say in regards to the actual making of the film because there is scant few details yeah, out there yeah. as to how this film was made and also we can really talk about is the the climate around the film and the films around the film and what cinema was like back then and i think yeah. we've done a good job of really summing that up yeah because this is a film it's typical for the 1970s that it, it's based on a novel yeah, a lot of films in the seventies were based on novels, and um, I think it's quite a small scale production. Even if you look at the list of names at the end of the film, there wasn't a massive crew, and it's quite a small scale film. It's yeah, literally most of it's set in a house. So there's a couple of physical effects and bits and bobs, but a lot of it's just down to the acting. I think this would have been quite a a low budget production. So I don't really feel like, especially at the time, the kind of films that MGM and and the likes were making at the time, I can't imagine it would have had a, a troubled production. It would have been quite routine, I think. Especially getting someone like Julie Christie. I mean, getting that actress probably would have just greenlit the film straight away anyway. Yeah. So. It does. It just seems like a very smooth, moving production. Even when Dean Kuntz talks about it, he doesn't mention anything that actually came up during the making of the film. Yeah. It was just plain sailing, really. And I think it's really just the aftermath of the film where it kind of hit the the stumbles. Yeah, that's where um, it hit the rocks. Yeah, but we'll go into that later. But yeah, the best thing to do now would be to talk about the story because yes, it is a film that involves a house raping a woman. 
but there's quite a lot more to it than that. Yeah, and if anybody goes into this film expecting something that's really exploitative, something that's a bit of a slasher film that's more concerned with shocks and gore and violence and if anybody's expecting it to be a rape revenge film they're gonna be sorely disappointed because <laughs> it's not interested in any of those things oh i know <laughs> it sounds like the perfect film um that sounds like a summary of every single slasher film in the 80s yeah but um it's really is not that film there is a rape in it but it's handled in such a way that it's more concerned with the emotional torment that's leading yeah. up to it. Because by the point that the rape actually happens, or, well, there is an examination that takes place that's very much like a rape, that's very much against her will. But yeah. when the actual impregnation happens, it's something that she submits herself to. She's been manipulated to the yeah. point where she willfully gives herself to it. And it's more concerned with that. And there's no real revenge that follows that rape. It's not about her getting revenge against the machine or anything like that. She's already been damaged and there's no coming back from that. And I think that's a really kind of sad message, but also more true to life. Yeah, because in fact, I think the, the initial examination scene is probably actually more shocking it is, yeah. than the uh, the eventual insemination yeah. scene, basically. There's a lot more weight to it than just... There's no sort of lost element to this either in terms of the the computer there's it's all done very logically yeah um, this is where the 2001 comparisons really start because although you could say it's a riff-off but i think that the way that it uses those elements or the way that the filmmakers interpreted the thoughts of computers mm-hmm. like hal actually helped the film quite a lot I will say at its most base level, I have to approach this film as a ripoff, but I think it has different thematic things going on mm. beneath the surface, and it uses that story to explore a completely different side of technology. Another darker side, but a different side. Although there is one sequence in the film that is what I would describe as a direct lift from yeah, um, A yeah. Space Odyssey, and Obviously, I think we'll get into it when we actually start talking about the filmmaking and what's going on. But yeah, there is one sequence that it does feel like a studio note as well. Like, we need a scene that's like that from 2001 A Space Mm. Odyssey. We need something to copy that. And the film actually goes out of its way to do it. Mm. It doesn't really have anything to do with the story. We'll talk about that later. I'll leave that (laughs) as a mystery hanging over this episode. Oh, what could it be? I do think that this film does explore a different side to technology than 2001 because essentially this is a robot that is trying to understand how humans work and trying to create something that's actually a merger of the two. That's mm. something that is both human and robot. It's more interested in almost like creating a bloodline. Yeah, it's kind of more interested in creating a legacy mm-hmm. to further extend its knowledge base. Yeah. I think the other thing that it explores that 2001 doesn't explore is the the corporate nature of creating something like this. Yeah. Because I, I found that part of it quite interesting and I found that I liked the way that the computer reacted against that. I think that's the more truthful side of something like this if it was made, that that's what it would be used for rather than anything actually positive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Let's set up these characters as well because yeah. we've got... Julie Christie, who plays Susan Harris, mm-hmm. who is the wife of Alex Harris, played by Fritz Weaver. Yeah. And he's a scientist that has created, or is one of the head scientists that has created the Proteus 4. 
the Proteus 4 is voiced by Robert Vaughn. Rather well, I'd say. Yeah. And a lot of the film pretty much just revolves around those three characters. Yeah. And very early on, we get the idea that something is wrong here. They have a separate room in which Dr. Harris can speak to Proteus one-on-one because they say it has a voice and they can talk to it. And they give it a command. It's something like drilling for metal in the ocean. Yeah. And it says no. It won't because it's an illogical command because it would harm the earth and help create an environment that would not sustain life anymore. Mm. And it would kill thousands of creatures just for the sake of the selfishness of a species. And Harris is trying to tell this computer that actually you don't have a say in this. We are giving you a command. You have to do it. You are something we've created. And that starts off the entire conflict really. Mm. And so we get into the corporate side of things of creating life and then asking it to act against its better judgment Mm. just because they want it to. So it does explore the darker corporate side of technology and how it can be used. There's some more typical 1970s themes going on. I mean, there's there's the whole dysfunctional relationship between Alex and Susan. Yes. It's kind of a a bit of a staple of 1970s films, especially like dramas and things like that. The thing I liked about that, though, was there was an obvious age difference, but they were both intelligent people because they were both doctors in different fields. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting that she was a child psychologist as well, because that kind of played a little bit into Proteus himself, because Proteus was really a child at the end of the day. I mean, in terms of its thinking and yeah, trying to learn more about stuff. It's only weeks old. At the yeah. end, of, it's, it's still in its infancy. But yet there was such a disconnect there between the, the two human characters. And it's funny that the relationship between Proteus and Susan, even though it's a, a rather horrendous relationship, there seems to be more of a connect there <laughs> than there yeah. ever is with the, with the human characters. But the main thing that I really liked about it is that they decided not to change the Alex character at the end, he still was that distant, cold character at the end. They didn't decide to do a Hollywood and make him see the error of his ways. They kept him the same character that he was. When I first watched it, I was expecting him to go darker as it went on. To be honest, because they were so cold and distant as a couple, mm. Dr. Harris and Susan Harris, I expected that by about the halfway point, he would figure out what Proteus was doing to his wife. And... Once he, as a scientist, because these are all cautionary tales about scientists reaching beyond their grasp, I was expecting him to go along with it, all to right. authorize it, because he was too concerned with looking at the end game. And it does have an element of that at the very end of the film with the last scene, when they do come across the creature that they've helped mm. make, and she wants to kill it, but he wants to preserve it. I thought that was going to come into play much sooner Mm. and that actually as the film went on he was going to be revealed to be the more villainous of Mm. the two. Yeah. But I think once they made the decision that the rape was going to happen Mm. the villain had to stay Proteus. Yeah, but I think at the same time I I think I liked the fact that after a certain point in the film that character kind of disappears because he's so obsessed with this Proteus project that he kind of doesn't care yeah about checking up on her or anything in fact it's the other character it's the walter character that is the more caring of the scientist towards susan it is yeah she is stuck in this house for over a month yeah it's a 28 day incubation period Mm. for the fetus inside of her and 
I think it's a week after that as well that it has to stay in another incubator. Yeah, she's and probably then, been in the house about six weeks. Yeah, and then plus whatever time she was being brainwashed mm. and emotionally manipulated before then. So you're looking at two months, I would say. Mm. And he has not been concerned with her whereabouts or what she's up to whatsoever during that entire period. He hasn't made any attempt to contact her. That's how distant they are as a couple. Yeah. In fact, there's a slight plot problem in that whole section is that because obviously walter is an employee of this icon yeah. center which is the the place that creates protests after his character is killed there doesn't seem to be any suspicion aroused that what this guy's gone missing yeah there's a bit of a plot hole there where yeah he's one of the lead scientists yeah and he's just disappeared and no one questions they don't, yeah, exactly <laughs> but yeah that's probably the one main plot hole actually i think and that isn't really yeah, I mean, I would mention as a, as a plot hole anyway in, is that we are given a time frame in which all of this happens, which, again, we would say somewhere between a month and a half to two mm. months. But it does feel like it happens over a week at most. It kind of rushes they through. They do rush through it, yeah, yeah, like towards the end. It's kind of like they don't want to show too much of that side of it. I think it's a slippery slope as well as how much of the emotional and manipulation and the emotional torture of this woman do they want to show and can they show mm. because it becomes an entirely more unsettling film i think the longer it dwells on that it, to be honest it should be considering its subject matter it should be very unsettling it's still definitely trying to entertain i think it should embrace some of the darker elements as well a little yeah. bit further maybe embrace that side of it a little more and really try to make an audience squirm in their seat a little bit mm. not with gore or anything like that just by dwelling on some real life consequences of what's mm. actually happening here but it, it kind of breezes through it i mean you can see why because once critics got an idea of what this film was about they were very hard on it yeah so i can see why they've kind of rushed through that because it is a studio picture at the end yeah. of the day and to be honest i think if they made this film now they'd be even more cautious yes because of its subject matter but at the same time i do feel that the film is the right length yeah i don't feel it goes on too long or not long enough it's just i think that there's a bit of a time frame thing going on like the last sort of 25 minutes where yeah. it does speed that part of the the story up in fact it would probably it probably would have solved the issue even more if the incubation period had been even quicker it would have made it yeah. not feel so rushed because, yeah, it is literally a case of the main point of the action takes place over a couple of days and then it suddenly speeds up quite a lot. So I think that's where the, the pace of the film kind of suffers a little yeah. bit. I think the other thing to talk about is, um, obviously, this is a, a house that impregnates a woman, but how exactly does it do it? Yeah, we, we do need to set this up, yeah, this whole side of the film because we have been talking about a house impregnating a woman a lot. Yeah. And anybody that hasn't seen this film, I imagine, has wild images in their minds <laughs> as to what is actually taking place it reminds me of that, yeah. that episode of brass eye where that pedophile disguised yeah. as a school <laughs> yeah this is a film about a house that rapes a woman and she gives birth to a bungalow <laughs> <laughs> okay in two, no. in two garages <laughs> yeah. i think this is where they really wanted to play into people's fears actually because a lot of the films that had been made about this kind of subject or the dark side of sci-fi had generally been done in distant environs. So they're usually like a lab. Or a spaceship. A spaceship or a, or a futuristic theme park yes. that only rich people went to. Things like that. But this one actually takes it in the home, which 
that's kind of a very shocking thing to do. Yeah. And um, it really plays upon modern consumer electronics and progresses that in a 1970s direction yeah. in terms of... Actually, to be honest, quite a lot of this stuff is not is actually um, quite forward-thinking because there's a lot of stuff now. There's a lot of surveillance there is, apparatus yeah. that you can buy these days that you can control via apps and different little computer programs and programs that can control your lights and everything. So... It's not actually that far-fetched, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's more 70s than the fact that there's a lot more mechanical apparatus out there than there would be now. But it really sets this home up as being completely self-sufficient and controlled entirely by a computer if it wants to. Which, like you say, is it's entirely forward-thinking because you can control your lights, your heating, by phone these days. Everything's wired yeah. straight into your tablet or phone. So this is incredibly, almost like foreshadowing for how we live now. Yeah. This one's even down to the, the doors inside the house that can be locked by a computer, which I think is incredibly stupid. But yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> they kind of set themselves up for failure and this one, really. <laughs> yeah. It, it does seem to be set up to be like a military bunker. Yeah. Or something of the sort. Yeah. I mean, this guy is really prepared. On a story sense, I mean, if you remade this summit, it would actually make more sense if... Um, the Alex character was kind of in on it a little bit. Yeah. Because it would probably fill up some of those plot holes where it's like, why is this there? Because there are a couple of apparatus in the house that are very conveniently uh, placed. Mm-hmm. For example, the main one being the contraption of Joshua. Yeah. Which is the little, uh, what, what you were going to call it. <laughs> well, Joshua is a wheelchair <laughs> with a arm attached to it, a robotic arm. And when I first watched it, with my friend Gary, who we were very drunk at the time, and I said it looked like his wanking chair, <laughs> and it seriously just looks like a chair he would sit in, and it would um, touch him up a little bit. And I was like, he calls it the stranger. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, and that's that's essentially what it was to me. It was his wanking wheelchair, so he could move about the house wherever he wanted and never stop being pleasured. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, and that's Joshua. I mean, <laughs> is that the that's, reason? Is that the reason for yeah. their marriage breaking down? Yeah. Just, just on the Joshua chair yeah. a bit too much. God, yeah, he's just wandering through the house. He on spent his chair. all day on that wheelchair. <laughs> I could do those things for you, not in the way that Joshua does. <laughs> he has a precision of movement. <laughs> I can't think of a reason as to why you would have that chair. Honestly, he, he it's just, just a um, wheelchair with an arm attached to it. <laughs> like this random robotic arm. And when I was watching it, I was like, there is no other reason for him to have that chair other than to pleasure himself. There's literally no <laughs> other practical purpose for that chair. Yeah, he, kind of, he turns it as an old experiment. I mean, maybe it's he was trying to create a robotic arm and just happened to construct it on a wheelchair. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's very, very random. But um, without it, the story wouldn't really yeah. work. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> I can see him trying to explain it to her as well. Like, oh, it's an old experiment as he's like kicking his anal beads <laughs> on, <laughs> underneath the desk. Yeah, this, this is his lab in inverted <laughs> commas. And it's in the background, you've got a bike with a dildo attached to the, <laughs> like, the, the seat. It's like, that's just another extra. It's just another one of those experiments I was working on. Didn't really add up to much. Oh, it's like, it's like that George Clooney character in Burn After Reading. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> with the fucking dildo in the chair. It is, yeah, definitely. 
Oh, that's one of my favorite reveals in a film ever. <laughs> Honestly, you think he's working on some top secret design or something, it just ends up being a chair with a dildo on it. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> that yeah. is one of the best films about nothing I have ever seen, Burn After Yeah, reading. I think it's a very misunderstood film, that film. Yeah. But, uh, that's another day. Oh, we sh- yeah, we, we should. should we should, that one. yeah. There's a lot of things in the lab and are scattered around the house that do seem to aid this Protoss character in what he's doing. And without them, he probably wouldn't be able to do anything, really. No. So, yeah, in that sense, there are quite a lot of things in the setup that are rather convenient. Yeah, so you do have to grant it some leeway in those early scenes. You do have to say, okay, I can't think of a practical reason as to why these inventions would have been created and why they're still around the house, but... You kind of grant it to it because the film isn't too concerned with any of that. It's just a way to get one character from one place to another place. The idea within the story is that the Alex character has a terminal yes. in his house, which is a way of speaking and interfacing with Proteus. Because Proteus, in fact, is based at this massive facility that's underground in yeah. wherever, in insert location here, <laughs> desert location here. Yeah, And they interface with it in several different ways. And yeah, he's just been turned on and does things like he invents a cure for leukemia in the first like four days. Yeah. They also play with the idea that there is living tissue involved in the creation of this artificial intelligence yeah, they like, kind of within the computer he, he, itself. Yeah, they, they're saying he's like organic. It's not a, a big circuit board. It's basically a brain, an actual brain, like a synthetic brain. Yeah. Which I kind of thought was quite interesting. It was kind it of, was. I thought I, it was kind of forward-thinking as well. I wanted it to explore that whole element of the yeah. film more, really. Mm. And I imagine if they did the film now, if they did a remake of it, that is something that they would explore. Yeah. More so the line between something living and something dead and something being artificial. I think it would explore that whole side of it far more. I mean, the leukemia thing comes into play later on as well. Yeah. With the whole daughter storyline because that, that, oh, yeah. that seems to also be the reason why these characters are cold and disconnected towards each other. Yeah. Well, especially while the Alex character is so cold and disconnected. Yeah, they've lost a daughter, haven't yeah. they, to leukemia. Mm. And they no longer connect with each other. Yeah, and she's gone into child psychology. I wouldn't think that would have helped. No, and her whole job just seems to be playing surrogate mother to yeah. a lot of children that come her way for yeah. a short while and then handing them back off to their mm. real families. Because she does seem to strike a strong connection with the kid that we do see. Is it Amy? Amy, yeah. yeah. It's a little brat to me. What yeah. she does is whinge. <laughs> I didn't like Amy. Uh, but yeah, it seems that she does strike a strong connection with these characters. So I don't know how it would help her. It would just prolong the grief. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's the idea when they actually start asking it to do things and that it wants to do work on its own. It definitely wants to be independent. It wants to do what it wants to do yeah i think the line that he keeps mentioning is it wants to live outside of the box that yeah, they've created for he it says when will you let me out of this box yeah which i think i thought was a great line it's a it's a fantastic line they say no so he decides to go behind the back basically he thought fuck mm. you i'll do what i want and um manages to download himself into this console that's in alex's house because that's the only other console that's not in the facility yeah and it's being kept there in secret as well nobody else knows about this console that's at alex's house Mm. and it's kind of wired into the entirety of the house as well yeah so once the proteus program downloads itself its own consciousness into this 
computer system, it has control over the entire house. And that's mm. how it makes a prison yeah. for Susan. And the guys at the facility are just not aware that this has happened. Because no. whilst yeah. he's at the house, he's also at the facility. Mm-hmm. He's very omnipresent. Yeah, it's very much like Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen. Yeah. Right? Can, he can just split himself into as many different versions and each of them has their own consciousness. It does their own thing. Mm. But they're all a collection of the same consciousness. There's already another computer, a very basic computer program in the house that is their butler. Yeah. I find it quite interesting that there was also uh, a Latin maid at the start of the film as well, which definitely uh, dates the film somewhat. (laughs) You know, talking about that system as well, the Alfred system that was already in place, it's a little bit more basic. It's far more basic than Proteus. It's much more like the kind of computer system you expect to see in these films with futuristic kind of environments. In fact, it's kind of like a system that you'd probably get now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it does have control of everything in the house from the cookers to, well, the environment and stuff like that. Mm. There is a scene in which Susan refuses to eat and refuses to uh, do anything for Proteus. Mm. So it locks her in a room and turns on all the heat and it locks her in the kitchen and it turns on the cooker, it turns up with the heat, it turns on the radiators and everything like that. The, the, and the underfloor heating uh, as the well. The underfloor heating. Now, I wanted to talk about this underfloor heating for a <laughs> second because that room gets so hot, we see an egg fall on the floor and it begins cooking. Yeah. Whose house? How is that beneficial <laughs> to anybody? Who wants their house to be so hot you could cook an egg on the fucking floor? Why would that be allowed? Aren't there any safety measures? Oh, it's just gone beyond normal parameters. There would have been a scene where goes... Exceeded maximum parameters, or something like that. <laughs> I don't think that would be allowed to happen anyway. I don't think it would be capable of creating enough heat that it could cook eggs and bacon on the floor. But I, I suppose those are the elements that I would describe as as goofy. And that's yeah. where the film's at. It's goofiest for me, even though I do kind of like that scene. Yeah, I think the other thing is just the fact that you can actually lock the doors internally. Yeah. Why would you need to do that? Even at its most basic level, in the sort of the Siri version of which is basically alfred alfred is yeah. kind of like what siri is now or cortana if you're on a different <laughs> platform but that kind of voice activation thing that speaks back to you why the hell would you let it be in charge of your doors no i know especially your internal doors not even like your front door or your back door that, that kind of thing yeah i was gonna say oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to get it in charge <laughs> You don't want to put it in charge of your back door. door. (laughs) um, It's on the locking key, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. No way in, just one way out. Again, it does feel rather convenient that it's in charge of everything. It's not practical, but basically the reason it's doing it is to play on people's fears. If you relinquish all control, this is what can happen. Yeah, and I do like the scene in which Proteus does lock her in the kitchen. And... There is a battle of wills going on. Mm. I like that Susan as a character does fight for a hell of a long time. Yeah. And she does fight against it. And she does come across as being strong, but not in a cliched way strong. Yeah. Because there's that cliched way in which people can write strong female characters that just fits a really basic mold. Yeah. Whereas um, when people talk about strong female characters, they actually talk about flaws and all. They just want... A strong, fleshed-out character. And she is. She feels like a strong, fleshed-out character that has a history. Yeah. And um, is troubled and is flawed. And she only submits when she really has no other choice Yeah, but to go through with it. And that's the thing. I wish that this film actually played on the consequences of that more 
because after the deed is done, she quickly reverts back to normal, a normal state. And she doesn't seem to be emotionally or mentally troubled by it anymore. And I think that's the only thing about the whole rape side of the film that actually I think is lacking, is that it doesn't really play on the consequences of rape whatsoever. It's just used as a plot point that leads to the proteus child at the end of the film mm. it's more a byproduct of the story and i think that's something that dean Koontz with his rewrite has tried to avoid because i yeah. think it must have been apparent when he rewatched it that the rape itself actually it was just a story mechanism and i think that's that's where this film it fails but otherwise i really quite like it and i like the battle of wits and wills between proteus and susan mm. yeah he didn't really delve too much into the psychological side after it happened it was all before and then not much after like it just didn't want to go there yeah and i I get it it is a film of the 70s we have to approach it as Mm. a film of the 70s and what films were like that i mean 70s was a great era for cinema but we have to approach it as the way that people thought and and the way films kind of approach these subjects as well and we were on this cusp of truly exploitation film rape revenge film mm. i spit on your grave was just around the corner and things like that when we compare this to that i mean demon seed comes off as far more subtle and yeah. far more kind of uh delicate yeah it definitely switches tack towards the end and focuses more on the monster in inverted yeah. commas like the creature that's been created mm-hmm. that seems to be where it's more interested at that time in the last sort of 10 minutes or so there is a great line that i love that um the fetus itself stays inside susan and develops for 28 days and then it is taken out of it and put into an incubator where it will grow to about i think it's something like nine or ten years old yeah and one of the lines she says is she asks the proteus program if she can see the child and proteus responds not if you are to love it yeah not yet and i was like oh that's so sinister i really want to see it yeah you know i thought that was a great line it's like moments like that that made me skin tingle when i in was fact, watching it. I, i'd say proteus probably has all the best lines in this yeah. film yeah like, i think so, so i mean the other thing i wanted to mention as well like, the film itself felt very um hitchcockian well hitchcock's a famous pervert as well yeah. so it, it makes sense <laughs> yeah even in the music as well it felt like a very bernard herman-esque score at the time i can hear that yeah it felt in between a a bernard herman score and jerry goldsmith one with all the music concrete yeah Uh, it was a a hybrid between those two that's it when i was watching it i kept convincing myself it was jerry goldsmith even though it was jerry fielden but yeah he has has a lot of great lines i've probably got a list a couple of these ones here oh there's another one which is um visiting hours are over mrs harris that's a good one yeah it is oh you like games so do i mm-hmm and I really like Robert Vaughn yeah, as Proteus say as well. I mean, it's Julie Christie that nails it on a performance level in terms of actually she being the only actor present on screen. Yeah. But it wouldn't work without Robert Vaughn's voice interacting with her. Yeah, and Robert Vaughn plays nice guys a lot. And cool guys. Yeah. And in this, he's made to play really cold and calculated. Yeah. And he plays it really quite well because... They could easily fall into the trap of it just being a Hal ripoff. And I think there's a couple of moments where it perhaps does. Yeah. But actually, he makes it his own. Like I say, it's cold, it's distant, but it still has that, it, it has just a touch of cool every now and again. Like when it delivers one of those lines, you go, oh. Yeah, it's a, much, know, more, it's a much more gravelly voice than yeah. Hal, because Hal's quite clean. Yes, it is. And yeah. boyish, really, whereas Proteus sounds much older and slightly sleazier. 
it's a sleazy version of Hal. Yeah, in a way. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only villain of note, I can think the other villain he's played is not Lex Luthor in Superman 3. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's that character that's <laughs> yeah. a surrogate yeah. Lex Luthor. Not Gene Hackman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it is rather strange that he goes uncredited. I thought that because... Um, He's not in the credits whatsoever. You have to go on IMDb and look at right at the very bottom and it's right there, Robert Vaughn, uncredited. And I thought it was when I was watching a film. It's like, I'm sure that's Robert Vaughn. Uh, the only thing I can think of is that it's an image thing, that it's like his agent's gone. Robert Vaughn's fine to be doing this film, but I don't want you to advertise the fact that he's in this film Yeah. because of the kind of reaction that it might provoke. Or maybe it's like one of those, uh, like a surprise, you know, like in, in the same way that Gary yeah. Oldman took his name off Hannibal. Because he Maybe. didn't want people looking at that character and thinking, oh, that's Gary Oldman beneath all that. Maybe he didn't want people to look at this robot and think, oh, that's Robert Vaughn. Mm. It, like, they wanted it to be a character. Either that or it could be something where they've, they've seen a cut of the film and gone, oh, this is... Um yeah, maybe. Or even just the pre-publicity reaction and going, yeah, cause this the- could potentially hurt this actor's career mm-hmm. in this certain field, so we won't have his name off the film. Yeah, because before this film was released, and we will get into it, the critics did set this film up for a failure. They yeah. were very hard on this film. We'd have to ask Robert Vaughn, really. Yeah. Robert Vaughn, if you're <laughs> listening. <laughs> if anyone knows Robert yeah. Vaughn, because he does do a lot of things in England these days. Yeah. But, um, Going into Prittis as a character and what he does, I think the other thing we really haven't mentioned is the uh, giant Rubik's Cube that lurks in the basement. (laughs) I didn't know whether to mention it now or wait until the filmmaking side of things, but I think, yeah, it's a good point to actually mention because he does have a physical presence and it does take the form of a giant Rubik's snake. Yeah, it's a Rubik's triangle. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) And it forms this diamond. And then it unfolds into a Rubik's snake that everybody knows. You know, that, yeah, it's like a, a series of triangles that stretch out. If anybody knows what a Rubik's snake is, if you don't know, Google it. You'll yeah. know immediately. Because it You've basically looks exactly one. the same. It's and basically it, a gold version of that. Yeah. And it actually it kills people as well. Yeah. In a fantastic fashion. It's never really made clear. And again, this is another kind of fault with the film. It's never really made that clear of how he manages to build this thing i was about to say i I don't remember ever showing us how this thing was built no i mean i can't imagine joshua the wanking chair making it from scratch (laughs) either (laughs) and it seems like there's a couple of other sort of robotic (laughs) um arms and bits and bobs in that lab yeah are involved in the examination scenes and things like that but uh, nothing at the level where they could really create something like this in such a short space of time Mm. but um you know protoss is pretty smart yeah he's very resourceful it's another one of those kind of goofy elements that you just let slide yeah you you just chalk it up to the film being a little bit on the goofy side and it's all worth it for when you get the resolution of what it can actually do (laughs) as well because oh what's the name of the character that walter walter yeah yeah it's when walter actually comes around and realizes what's going on he has a one-on-one fight with proteus and the rubik snake yeah (laughs) and it kind of reaches beyond him and pulls him in yeah and then crushes him within the center of the rubik's snake yeah it kind of consumes him almost yeah. like and uh, his head sort of pops off yeah just as he realizes what it's doing to him his head pops off <laughs> <laughs> and it quickly <laughs> quickly fades to black yeah before you really get to dwell on any of the yeah blood. That, that's really the only schlocky moment in the whole film yeah it is and like i say it curiously doesn't let you dwell on the violence it's like no it, it fades out soon as the head pops off it fades it's out. It's kind of handled away. quite well in that sense, I'd say. Yeah, because he's very tuned into the fact that this film could have easily become an exploitation slasher film mm. that we've talked about. And this is the moment where it is most like that f- kind of film. Mm. And it quickly, 
quickly rushes over it and moves on and deals with it in the most tasteful way it can. Yeah, it wants really to get back to that 2001 area, which um, it explores in a big way when it actually comes down to the insemination itself. Yes. That's how it handles it, really. Well, this was the scene I was talking about earlier, because when the actual insemination takes place, we are treated to a space corridor scene. On a budget. Yeah, on a low budget. Yeah. And not by, um, oh, what's his name? Douglas Trumbull. Douglas Trumbull, yeah. yeah. It's like, and yeah. not by Douglas Trumbull. Yeah. I mean, we need to set this up as well because it goes out of its way to include this Stargate sequence. And it doesn't actually make sense at all, really. It's not needed. It's not necessary. Mm. Drone insemination. They just think, oh, we need something like that in this scene. Yeah. In this film. Yeah. It's, it feels like a studio, like I said earlier. And when Proteus is actually inseminating Susan, he begins talking about space and life and things like that. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of they're designed to represent the things that he can show her. Yeah. So it's kind of almost a distraction for the character, but also the audience. Yeah, Because exactly. you could basically have a slogan going, sex scene taking place at this <laughs> moment in time. Bear with us. We rush into space and through space to a distant world and triangles come at us and things like that. And we do find out that from other characters later on that it did fix satellites onto a far distant point on Orion yeah. somewhere. And that this was a visual representation of that signal moving mm. through space to this point. But again, I think it does actually take away from the fact from what's actually happening to her. Mm. Because this is essentially the rape that's taken place. And the film doesn't want you to concentrate on that. No. And I think that's why it feels like a studio note to me. Because it's like, this is the scene with the rape. This is a scene that's really the most horrible that mm. this film gets. And rather than let us dwell on that, it distracts us. It yeah. sends us somewhere yeah, else. Yeah. It sends us to the sky and back. It doesn't let us dwell on the fact that a woman's being raped here. Yeah, yeah. And I think when I was talking about there's something I wanted to mention as being a point of contention that I think people would pick up on, this is it. Yeah. Uh, because something horrible is happening elsewhere, but the film doesn't want us to see that. I get that. I don't want to see it myself in particular either, but I want to feel like there's weight to it. Something weighty and real and horrible is happening. I don't mm. want to feel like, oh, wow, look, I'm high. I'm going from space, man. Yeah. It feels like a real conflict. It's kind of a double-edged sword, because like, I like that they've gone about it in a subtle way and not show anything like that, because then, yeah, it would be exploitative. But at the same time, it's kind of, yeah, it is a distraction but I, from even what's if they really going on. wanted to do this, but made it slightly more ominous. Yeah. Like, even if they made the travelling tinge There's with darkness. There's a little darkness. bit too much wonder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It needed to be... Like, if they were going to go with the whole Starfield thing, it needed to be much darker. Yeah. That's it. It needed to be 2001, but a real darker version of that. Mm. When, in fact, it's actually a lighter version of that. Yeah. And I don't think the music helps at that point either. No, it doesn't. It's, it's very, like... The Age of Discovery. <laughs> it's very romantic sounding. Yeah, it's romantic. It's romance. Yeah. That's exactly what it's playing for. I suppose it's time for us to actually start discussing what the result of this rape and insemination is and how we are introduced to the child that is Proteus. The other thing I wanted to mention that I thought was quite interesting and they could have not done this. The thing I liked that they did, Proteus is definitely the villain of the piece, but they still go about it in such a way that you do see his side of it. You can see the side of the computer. He goes about everything in completely the wrong way. Yeah. But you can kind of sympathize with what he's feeling at the same time. Well, it's in that way in that you can see how something so rational has made such irrational decisions. Yeah. 
because yeah. it's only dealing with logic and it doesn't understand any emotional side of things whatsoever. Mm. And that's the thing that the film plays with a lot is that this computer program is essentially lacking in human qualities such as emotion. Yeah. It doesn't see the emotional side of things. It doesn't see how what it's doing is wrong on an emotional level and a physical level and what barriers it's breaking. All it sees is what's logical for itself and to further its own yeah. life and development. But at the same time, it's yearning to get to that place. Yeah. It wants to feel the sun on its face. It's almost like something we were discussing with Dark City not too long ago about, mm. about those characters. This is a character that yearns to be human because it's essentially not human. Also, by the end of the film, it's kind of a race against time for the Protoss character because the powers that be have been aware of these problems that have been having and they're basically going to shut him down. Yeah. And it's a kind of a race against time for Protoss as a character to get this all completed so he can basically transfer himself into this body or a version of him into this new body. Yeah, I mean, we are even led to believe that it's perhaps not even Proteus IV that inhabits this body. It's more of an amalgamation between Julie Christie, Susan and Proteus. Mm. And that's somewhat undercut by the final line in the film. Yeah. We do yeah. get the idea that when Proteus dies... That version of his consciousness has died. It is a death. Yeah. That is undercut by the final line when we do actually get to see this child and it speaks in Robert Vaughn's yeah. voice and says, I am alive, which is one of the worst decisions I think they actually made in the production. They should have kept the child's voice. and made and Yeah, even, I think they should have done as well. I don't think it needed that line. I think it just needed to end on the child's face. Because, yeah, I think, I think it's just a little bit goofy. Yeah. And it should have ended a couple of shots earlier. Yes. And it should have just ended on that line, I'm alive, cut. Yeah. The end. But yeah, it should have been the kid's voice, not his voice. Because you still would have got it. Yeah. But definitely. it would have been subtler and it yeah, wouldn't have been as goofy. Probably would have been better for me if, if it was just the kid's voice. Mm. I'm imagining this child, because it is a little girl with red hair. And I imagine, I'm imagining this like six year old child speaking in Robert Vaughan's voice <laughs> forever. Right? It's like, Mother, I am hungry. <laughs> It is very weird. Yeah. Before that, I liked how they handled the creature because you were made to believe that it was this monstrous creature. Yeah. Because when you look into the incubator, she sees something that's entirely monstrous and we don't actually get to see it as the audience ourselves. So mm. as we know, she's seen something so terrible that's made her want to abort whatever's in there. Mm. So she begins kind of trying to destroy the incubator to kill the child. In doing so, she releases the child. Mm. And this mechanical monstrosity comes like crawling out of it and it's i don't know it's it's very plump but it's covered in this metal casing and it's it does look like a 70s sci-fi villain sci-fi robot villain and it looks kind of scary as well yeah i was gonna say i think we've mentioned it before but i think species took a little bit from this yes. as well it oh it definitely has a, has a touch species. of species yeah. yeah it's immediately turned on its head when you realize that this this creature is very helpless when it just falls over yeah there's a revelation when Alex starts to peel off the skin, it's revealed that it's actually human underneath. Yeah, and it's mainly just a protective casing. Mm. It's a great reveal. Mm. That's the thing. I don't think it needed that voice because of what was in the imagery anyway. Yeah. We already got the sense that there was something artificial and robotic about it just because of the casing that it was in. Mm. I also do like talking about this entire ending that it doesn't turn into a rape-revenge film. No. It doesn't turn into a film about her picking up a axe and smashing computers to bits again i wish it went further along the line of examining the consequences of what's happened to this poor woman but by the time that the characters actually get to her 
she's already been manipulated into believing that it's okay, it's happened. She'll get through it. It's not about her trying to smash this machine to smithereens mm. or beat it or anything like that. I prefer that yeah. because that's not what happens with rape anyway. No. I still like that they kept the, the Alex character consistent in the fact that when he first sees it, he references it as a miracle. He's still in sort of science land. Yeah. And doesn't really register the emotional impact of what's just happened. Yeah. And he's just more interested in, oh, what an interesting experiment that's just taken place. See, that's it. I expected that to happen sooner with that character. Yeah, yeah. I kind of still want it to. But, yeah. Um, I think that would have taken away a little bit from the whole, this film resting on Julie Christie's shoulders and it. Boy, boy, is she good in this film. Okay, so I think we've talked about as much as we can about horny houses, killer Rubik snakes, and wanky chairs, and it's time for us to figure out why this film has been forgotten. Perhaps we'll find some clues in the stats and facts. First up, we have the critical response. So, critically, on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an average rating of 67%, which I'd say is kind of fair. I'd say so, yeah. yeah. Not brilliant, but not without merit. Yeah. I'd actually say its reputation is probably gone up a little bit because i know on the wikipedia page they quote it as being 62 percent. so obviously there's been some more positive reviews oh fantastic posted yeah. since because there's only about 15 reviews anyway and it's got an average rating of 6.1 out of 10 which again is yeah it's fair. fair it's definitely on the more positive side considering some of the films we've been reviewing recently yeah the empire review which is is that a retrospective review as well yes by uh, kim newman obviously obviously <laughs> and he gives it four out of five actually And he writes, these days, a movie about a mad supercomputer that terrorizes a woman through her automated environment and forces her to bear its child would be considered a high-concept cyber thriller. (laughs) In 1977, it was made by Donald Camel, Nicholas Roeg's performance partner, as a visionary art movie. Julie Christie is trapped in her home by a computer with Robert Vaughan's voice and suffers through a reign of tyranny until a surprisingly upbeat and moving final genesis. This is remarkably pressing in its tackling of issues the cinema is now only catching up with, and Chrissy adds depth to a lady in peril heroine. Well worth reassessment. I don't think it quite gets into the more goofy elements, but it does talk about the kind of thematic depth that there is to yeah. Demon Seed. I guess we've got to talk about that as well, really, is the name. Yeah. Because Demon Seed isn't a name that reflects the film. No whatsoever it feels like it's cashing in on the omen yeah i mean it's sort of bungled with a lot of these satanist the exorcist and the omen and rosemary's baby is another one that comes to mind it's sort of clumped in with those kind of films when it's really not like that at all no although it did remind me of rosemary's baby when i was watching it once it gets into the actual childbirth side of things yeah have elements of rosemary's baby and ask a couple of the same questions like could a mother love something that could be evil from the start you know it ends just as that question is asked so it does remind me in that way but again the, the name doesn't reflect it no because i remember when i was little seeing the stills from the film and i was always wondering why why it was called demon sea yeah it, nothing the, the imagery of the film didn't look like no because you're expecting something religious or satanic like you say yeah but uh, at the same time it's it's the name of the book so yeah <sighs> i suppose the book was also cashing in yeah, because it was released in 1973, yeah. so maybe. We've got one of two quotes from Dean Coots, anyway. He's talking about the critics in this particular quote. So he says that many critics were kind to the film, but some were baffled by it. A recurring theme among those who didn't get the premise, which was 
usually the self-appointed intellectual critic, was the contention that the story was too ridiculous because it supposed that Julie Christie's husband, a pioneer in artificial intelligence research, would have a computer in his home. <laughs> Which I think is quite funny. Yeah, that is quite <laughs> funny. Especially now. Especially yeah. when we look at it now. I mean, this film would actually sit better now, I think, than it would then. Yeah, because it is interesting in how many ways it is forward thinking. Yeah. So, over to the box office then. Unfortunately, there was no budget listed whatsoever. But I can say that according to Wikipedia, it did make $2 million at the box office, which is an incredibly small amount even yeah. for then, I yeah. think. So, this wasn't a hit whatsoever. No. I do have a quote from Dean Koontz on the release of the film and the quality of the film itself. He said, The film version produced on a modest budget sprouted in theatres in early 1977 when I was still young and marginally less ignorant. Director Donald Camel and producer Herb Jaff, a very nice man in the not-so-nice world of film, made excellent use of what money the studio provided. Julie Christie starred, a first-rate casting choice. The movie wasn't a triumph of cinematic art, but it was good. Solid. At last, it seemed, that I would get a career boost from a smart film adaptation, as had so many other novelists. Wrong again. In the end, the studio released Demon Seed with a stealth advertising budget. Before release, it changed the initially classy poster and the stylish newspaper ads into a sleazy, minimalist campaign to give the impression that the marvellous Julie Christie was appearing in a film produced by Larry Flynn. (laughs) The studio said they needed to keep the advertising budget low because this was a science fiction movie. And late in the game, they realised science fiction movies never made money. Obviously, this was just before the release of Star Wars, and that went on to prove that science fiction movies make an incredible amount of money. Because you can see the difference in the original poster versus the one that ended up being, because it's the original poster is, is that the yellow one with the arm? Yes. Which is much more sci-fi based. Mm -hmm. And then the, the other one is basically just above the headshot of a woman lying down yeah. saying Judy Christie has the demon seed and she's naked and it's yeah. just just cropping out her nipples yeah it does make it look like more of a skin flick something you'd expect a canon films of the same era yeah 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 I mean it's good to see as well that Dean Koontz is very happy with this film mm. like he doesn't regard it as being high art but a solid film and I'd say that's exactly what it is he has he's very to the point very down to earth in that yeah. way in that he's he's recognised that sure they haven't made the highest of art, but it's it's a good, solid, entertaining film, mm. and it is. I would I would yeah. agree with that. And now all that's left for me to ask is just the final questions that I ask at the end of every single episode. First up, are you any closer to understanding why Demon Seed has been forgotten? Yeah, I think it's because it's a very niche topic. It's going to be one of those topics that it's going to be very hard to get a lot of people to get behind and accept as to watch as an, as a cinematic experience. If you just yeah. mention what the premise of the film is, because if you mention that premise, everyone goes, what the fuck is that? Yeah. And I think the studio and themselves did no favours in completely misinterpreting and uh, just going about the marketing of this film in, in completely the wrong way. And also, just the fact that the um, film itself, for the thematic style of the film, was just a bit too late to the party for that kind yes. of science fiction film yeah. that it was probably about two years late if it had been released in 1974 75 it might have done something better but because it was out in 77 the whole viewpoint i mean the thing is with star wars it really tapped into an untapped market mm-hmm. 
and that's why people went to see it so much not just for the effects but for the kind of it was a more um uplifting experience when people needed to be uplifted yeah. at that time and that's why it really captured the zeitgeist whereas because this was yet another one of those downbeat sci-fi films i'm not sure that's what people wanted to see at the time yeah and i think that's basically where it became undone it was just a question of timing rather than it was kind of just wrong place wrong time for it yeah and i think if we couple in the fact that this film was a film that was mismarketed mm. uh, and really not marketed at all mm. and we also considered the title which is in- incredibly out of place for the film that it actually is but also based on the book i imagine yeah. that was also a marketing decision both for the book and for the film yeah and also i can't see anybody even if they like the film coming out of the cinema and explaining it to somebody and making them want to see it other than for <laughs> curiosity because when you explain it to somebody you're like oh i've just seen this film it was great what was it about oh this house raped a woman <laughs> like what I can't see anybody taking like approaching it as a legitimate film. Yeah. Because of that, even the word of mouth would have been, would have left people more confused than wanting to go to see it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can see why it didn't catch on because it at its core it is dealing with a very silly idea, even if it's doing it in a more intelligent way. Yeah. So yeah, I can see how it has been forgotten, but at the same time, I can also see how it has grown and cult status since yeah and how it continues to grow in cult status because there is depth to demon seed Mm. there is more there and there's certainly goofy stuff there as well there there, there is stuff that will entertain you even in a just a basic kind of visceral level Mm. i can see why it's been forgotten but i can also see why it's becoming a cult classic yeah definitely and finally is demon seed one of the best of the forgotten movies or should it simply remain best forgotten i think i'll go first with this one is that I have to say, at the end of the day, yeah, sure, it is goofy. It doesn't do everything right. There are elements that I think miss the mark. But overall, it does more good than bad. Yeah, yeah. So Demon Seed, for me, is one of the best of the forgotten films we've covered. Yeah. It's entertained me both times. I've seen it drunk and sober. Both times (laughs) I found it very entertaining for entirely different reasons. Yeah. But there is charm to Demon Seed. And it really is a dark strange and somewhat scary film Mm. once you look under the surface and once you get past those goofy elements i would actually advocate for a remake of this film yeah i think because i think it's certainly more relevant now than it's ever been yeah definitely and uh i would yeah i'd have to agree with you that it's one of the best of the forgotten because yeah it has flaws but it's really anchored by two very good performances by julie christie and robert vaughan Definitely. Uh, and that's they really help the film succeed because without those two it could potentially have been a really silly film yeah it's a shame as well that yeah robert vaughan didn't go on to do more stuff like this because i think he really excels in playing the darker roles yeah and, playing against time yeah on the whole as well i mean even down to some of the the stellar elements i think they're actually executed quite well for the time yeah it's definitely a, a film worth reassessing because if you can get past the the bonkers premise it's uh it can be quite a rewarding viewing experience. Yeah, there's something there. Yeah. Okay, and that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes. Also, if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. I'd also like to thank the excellent folks at followthenerd.com for featuring our podcast on their website. Thanks, guys. Join us next time as we take on Anran's Tomorrowland.
The film that Brad Bird made instead of Star Wars Episode 7. A decision I'm sure he does not regret whatsoever. <laughs> but until then, it's bye from myself and beep boop from Andy. Visiting hours are over, Mrs. Harris. <laughs> Thanks for listening.